There are no relative truths. Every truth is absolute. And something that is true is true for all persons at all times in all places. You say, wait, I can think of a relative truth already, Frank. What is it? Well, right now I feel warm while the people in Alaska feel cold. That's relative. No, it's not relative. It's absolutely true for all people at all times in all places that right now you feel warm. Remember, truth is what corresponds to its referent. When referring to you, it's true you feel warm right now, despite what the people in Alaska feel. It's absolutely true for all people in all times and all places that right now the people in Alaska feel cold. That's absolutely true. There are no relative truths. Truth is truth. Now, when you say things like this, however, you get a lot of objections in our culture today. Here are some objections we get to absolute truth. There is no truth. I heard that said on the radio once. Guy called in and said, there is no truth. What do you do with that? Someone called in one time and said, you can't know truth. Just can't know it. Or sometimes they'll say, all truth is relative, or my favorite, it's true for you, but not for me. Christianity may be true for you, but Buddhism's true for me, right? No one has the truth. You Christians, you think you have the truth? Let me tell you something. Nobody has the truth. What do you say to that? And if they really get an, uh, angry at you or annoyed, they'll say, well, you ought not judge. You Christians, you're so judgmental. Stop judging. Don't you judge me. Jesus said, don't judge. We've got to deal with all these things, don't we? If we can't refute these particular objections, then we can't say the Bible's true. And the way we're going to refute these claims is to apply the claim to itself. Apply the claim to itself. For example, if someone were to come up here, suppose I were to come up here and say to you, look, I can't speak a word in English. What would you say? Uh, you just did, right? Okay, everyone can see that's self-defeating. To say, I can't speak a word in English is self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. Now, something that's practically self-defeating would be for me to say, my parents had no kids that lived. <laughs> right? Have to be here to say that? Now, we call this in the book the Roadrunner Tactic because it reminds us of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. What's Wiley Coyote's only mission in life? Catch the Roadrunner. And Roadrunner's just a little bit too fast for, for Coyote, right? Just as it looks like Coyote's about to catch him, Roadrunner stops short of the cliff, and for that split second, as Coyote goes blowing by him, Coyote's hanging in midair with that question mark over his head until he realizes what? He's got no ground to stand on, and he plummets to the ground in a heap. That's exactly what you can do to people who utter self-defeating statements. You can show them their argument has no ground to stand on, and they plummet to the ground in a heap. The entire argument collapses on itself. So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? You see? Or if somebody says, all truth is relative, what should you say? Apply the claim to itself. Yeah, is that a relative truth? No, that's supposed to be an absolute truth. Right? How about somebody says this? This is a big one in our culture today. It's true for you, but not for me. What do you say to that? Apply the claim to itself. What do you say? This, this section over here. Well, you could say why, but the easiest way to refute it is to say... Yes, is that true for everybody? Is it true for everybody that's true for you but not for me? Because if it's true for everybody that's true for you but not for me, then true for you but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. Right? Actually, there's a more fun way to deal with this. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, 
Sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. Bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, you only have $47.12 in your account. And you go, huh, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. <laughs> now, if it's true for you, it's true for everybody. When it's a truth that refers to its referent. And that's true for religious claims as well. If it's true that God exists... That's true for everybody, whether you believe it or not. If it's true that Jesus rose again for the sins of the world, that's true for everybody, whether you believe it or not. Will your faith change whether Jesus died and rose again? No, he either did or he didn't, right? Regardless of what you believe about it. Do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do all those people who don't believe in gravity float away? Look, there's another one. Come back! Come back! If you believe, you'll come back! No! Your faith doesn't change a thing about whether or not this book is true. The only thing your faith does is it appropriates the salvific content of it to you. It does not change whether or not God exists or whether or not Jesus rose again or whether or not this book is true. How about this one? There's no truth in religion, only science. You hear this a lot on college campuses, or camp I. That's what they say. They say there is no truth in religion or philosophy or anything else. There's only truth in science. We get all our truth from science. So all your religious truths are just a matter of faith, and all the scientific truths over here, they're really true. What's the problem with the statement? Yeah, is that a scientific truth? No, that's not a scientific truth. You can't go in the laboratory and prove that. That's a philosophical claim right there. So it defeats itself and wipes away a lot of skepticism about Christianity. You ignorant, arrogant, judgmental Christians, you think you have the truth. Let me tell you, nobody has the truth. What do you say to that? Yeah, then how do you have the truth that that's true? If we can't know the truth, how do you have the truth that nobody has the truth? Because if you have the truth that nobody has the truth, then I guess somebody has the truth, namely you, which means that nobody has the truth isn't true. I know this can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but... In fact, in order for you to say that somebody is wrong, what do you have to know? You have to know what is right. You can't say somebody is not right unless you know what is right. You know, you're hearing a lot now from our postmodern culture that everything is meaningless or that words don't have any meaning. What do you say to that? Everything's meaningless. You say, hey, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, if everything's meaningless, what do you mean by that? Trying to tell us how to live when you say there's no meaning. Of course there's meaning. How about this one? You should doubt everything. This is what, this is the skeptical claim, right? What do you say to that? Yeah, should I doubt that? <laughs> See, why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? Why don't they start doubting doubt? See, if you start doubting doubt, then you're back to knowing something for sure, right? Maybe skeptics ought to start doubting their doubts. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. 
Actually, how many in here have doubts? Everybody has doubts. If you don't have doubts, you're not thinking. But when you... All right, so a lot of people aren't thinking. Sorry. <laughs> Everybody has doubts. But when you look at the evidence, at least for me, I realize that most of my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. And when they're emotional doubts, I should go, look, that's just emotion. Emotions come and go, but facts never change. When you look at the evidence for Christianity, you realize that you ought to start doubting your doubts. How about, oh, this is the biggie. This is the trump card. You can get through all this and they're going to say, but you ought not judge. Yeah, there you go. What do you say to that? You say, isn't that a judgment? See, so the next time somebody tries to stop you dead in your tracks for judging, they say, don't you judge me. You know what you ought to say to them? Then why are you judging me for judging? So that's what they're doing. You can't avoid making judgments. Now, this roadrunner tactic is an easy way for you to be a lie detector. We have a built-in lie detector called the law of non-contradiction. Was that fantastic? It's so cool. I was going to just share some of that stuff today, but it, it, the accent just helps. You know, that voice is hilarious. And it looks like he raided Michael Jordan's closet. <laughs> Didn't it? The little shirt and the big pants. It must have been in the 90s or something. But uh, that's Dr. Frank Turek. And he's a great apologist. Now, of course, we wouldn't believe everything that he believes. But he just does a really good job defending the truth and defending the faith. Now, if you do go and you check him out, he is an old earth creationist. So I know that we are young earth creationists. If you go and see him, don't get mad at me. I'm warning you he's an old earth creationist. But his stuff on this, it is just, it's true. It is true. And what happens is because the culture we live in throws this stuff at us constantly, isn't it good to be equipped to know how to handle these self-defeating statements. And he dealt with, at the end of that little clip, he started to talk about the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction states that if something is true, its opposite cannot be true. Right? So if I make the statement, Ravi Zacharias said this, he said, if I make the statement, I live in a bungalow, uh, but I don't live in a bungalow. That can't be, that, that's not a true statement. That's a self-defeating statement. It violates the law of non-contradiction. And so we're going to deal with some of that this morning. And open your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. <clears throat> Get Joshua 24 and Philippians 1. Joshua 24 and Philippians 1. It's going to be all over the Bible this morning. Um, in our Sunday school class, I, we, we have some new Bibles that are available that have four ribbons, which will be really good for Grace Baptist Church. <laughs> Spare the maps in the back of your Bible now. Joshua chapter 24. All right, when you all get there, look up here at me. We'll read it in just a minute. Um, Easter Sunday is getting ready to come. And you know that as Christians, Bible believers, there are no holy days in the church. How many of you recognize that? They're, we're not supposed to, that, that's not what it is. What Easter Sunday for us at Grace Baptist Church is, is an opportunity for us to invite people to come and hear the gospel. Amen? That's, that's the opportunity. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. 
Every Sunday we celebrate. That's why we come together on Sunday, because it's a day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why we're here. Aren't you glad he rose from the dead so that we can have new life? I feel like I'm sounding like Frank Turek right now. My New York accent is starting to come out. He said he's from New Jersey. I was watching a debate, and he only had 20 minutes to give 400 pages from his book. And he said, but I think it's possible. I speak at 150 words a minute with gusts up to 300. (laughs) That's true, isn't it? But we have, we do have Easter Sunday that's coming and we as believers, the, the work that takes place here on that Sunday morning. All right, the work that takes place when the singing takes place, the special music, everything we're going to try to accomplish for that day. And then the preaching of the word. All of you do the work of getting the people here to hear the truth. And in order to be able to do that, we have to be confident that we have the truth and that we're about what we are about to do is important. Amen? It's what we do is important. Uh, before the service, we were talking about basketball games and bad officiating. And, man, I don't know about you. I get really mad about bad officiating. Anybody else you're here? Because it's not fair. You know, it's just not right. It's not fair. Uh, I went to one of Luke Hickman's games a little while back, and it was the worst officiating I'd ever seen. I'd never seen anything like that. I only yelled at the refs a couple of times. I didn't embarrass the church completely. Um, it, it is, it's just amazing what happens at that. Well, if we get that worked up about bad calls, we ought to get that worked up about bad theology. Because what's more important? One has eternal consequences. The other doesn't. And so uh, it's perfectly right to get upset about bad calls because that's a violation of justice, and we're supposed to care about justice. But we ought to much more care. We ought to have greater concern about bad teaching than bad calls. Is that right? Would you all agree with that? All right, so this this is something that we really need to think about. Confident. Biblical ministry, in order to have confident biblical ministry, you have to believe that you have the truth. And that's what that video was about. Look with me at Joshua chapter 24. Children of Israel, getting ready to go in and claim the promised land. And Joshua is preparing them. He says in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Now look at that. In sincerity and in truth. Right? So there are some people that sincerely believe that the world is flat. Does their sincerity have any bearing on the truth? No. They're sincerely wrong. And so what it says here, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Now the other side of the flood, they crossed the Red Sea, so it's on the other side of that. All right? Then look at what it says in verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose, uh, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a decision that we have to make. I see that in a lot of Christian homes. I see that verse quoted in a lot of Christian homes. And if you ever walk up our front walk, we port a sidewalk, and we have that right in our sidewalk. So when you walk up our front steps, that verse is there. And we have chosen as a home to serve the Lord. 
That's a, that's a choice that we've made. Now go to Philippians chapter 1. How do we do this? Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 17. The first part is continuing the context, but let's just take it up right at that verse. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. I am set for the defense of the gospel. All right, Ben, come up here for a minute. Set yourself now. See the difference? He wasn't ready. Because he's not expecting the preacher to push him on the platform in front of the whole church. You've got to be ready for these things. Don't ever trust a preacher. Never. All right? It's really important that you get this. This is the state of the average Christian young person in the world. Right? And so what we are trying to accomplish with Ben and our other young people is this. Be set. The attack's going to come. You need to be ready for it. You need to be set. Thanks, Ben. It's really important that we get this because here's what happens with a lot of Christian young people. You're just kind of floating along. You know, kind of like a jellyfish. No spine. You know, you're just there. And at some point... This truth has to become yours. You have to choose this day whom you're going to serve. And in this, in, in this context, it is a battle, not a physical battle, but it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here's what happens. Christian kids, they come to church, they hear the truth from the time they're little. They just they hear truth and they just hear it, and all they've ever known is the truth. Well, they get to a point in high school or a point in college, and all of a the sudden, they're confronted with something that is not truth. And some young people get blown over by it. They're defeated by it. They stumble. The Bible word is they're offended by it. They fall. They can't stand for the truth. Why? Because they weren't set. They weren't set. You've got to know what you believe. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always. That's being set. Be ready always to give an answer to anyone that asks a hope, a reason for the hope that is in you in meekness and in fear. And that means that you can't just have all these ideas floating around. You've got to grab hold of those ideas and be prepared and ready to defend them. That's just true for you. That's just true for you. No, truth is true for everybody everywhere at all times. You ready? So you've got to be ready with those answers. Remember, we always say this. You don't really know something until you can tell it to someone else. Now, how many of you here would struggle to communicate it the way that Frank Turek just did? How many of you would struggle to do it that way? Especially when he starts putting it all together and it's all fast. I want to do that. I've got to try to learn how to do that because it's hilarious. It is so funny. But you can say when someone says there is no truth, you can say, is that true? And you watch people when you say that stuff. It really is that roadrunner effect. 
Their feet just get just get cast out from under them, knocked out from under them. And then they'll, they, if either they'll accept the truth or they'll say, well, I just don't believe what you're saying. Well, that's a more honest statement. Whether or not you believe the truth, though, then what do you go to next? Well, whether or not you believe it doesn't change whether it's true or not. I've always talked, the, the illustration that for gravity that I always use is, you know, if you jump off the building, whether you believe it or not, you're still going to be a little grease spot on the ground. But I loved what he did. They, do they just float away if they don't? Play? Come back! That's, that's the perfect illustration of it. Your belief or disbelief in the Bible has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. Remember the old bumper sticker. I think it was from Jerry Falwell. God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. That's a completely false statement. God said it, and that settles it whether I believe it or not. Isn't that right? And so what we have to do is we have to say, I am set for the defense of the gospel. How do we do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Okay, so what is this talking about? It's not a carnal battle. We're not taking up weapons to fight. This is a spiritual battle, and it starts by pulling down strongholds. Pulling down strongholds. What are these strongholds that we have to pull down? Look at the next verse. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So what this is, this is a challenge to us as Christians to, we all have these ideas that are just floating around. And if you have an idea that violates the truth of Scripture or that violates the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you've got to cast that idea down. You've got to destroy that idea, that imagination, and bring those thoughts into the captivity of Jesus Christ. The way that the Bible says it, keep your place in 2 Corinthians. Go with me to um, Ephesians. Chapter 6. And you can see this is, this is exactly the same context. If you look at verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Look, if you think you're strong enough to stand against this entire world system, you're not, right? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And then look at what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may, able, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. What is that standing? It's you've got to be set, or you're going to fall. You've got to be ready. And the way that you do that is by putting on the whole armor of God. Now look at what it says. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth. Your loins girt about with the truth. Now, remember what that is? These, these, everybody wore robes, but you can't run in a robe. You can't, you can't fight in a robe, 
right? You can't do it. And so they would wear a belt, and they'd take those robes, those loose ends, and they'd tie it up in their belt so that they'd have freedom of movement. And we as believers, we got to tie up the loose ends of our lives. And it, it says, how are we supposed to do that? Look at what it says. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with what? Truth. There is no truth. Do you see what happens? What's the only way to heaven? Remember what Jesus Christ said in John 14? He said, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. So he's saying there's a place, and I'm going to go, but I'm coming back. And they, they said, where are you going? We don't know. We can't know the way. And Jesus told them what the way is. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he's the way, but he's also the truth. The only way to get there is through the truth. If there is no truth, there's no Christianity. And the problem with modern Christianity is we just float with these ideas when we're supposed to be set for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That means we've got to do some, some mental work. But here it says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because we don't have any, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That means you leave every day prepared to give someone the gospel. And then it says, And above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And then look at what it says in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. I'm going to ask you a really technical question. All right, Paul, we're going to see just how with it you are today. Where do you wear your helmet? On your head. I knew you could do this. We're all winners. Um Notice what it's saying. The helmet of salvation. It's the helmet of salvation. You need to know what you believe about the gospel. You've got to be set for the defense of the gospel. And so there are four questions that if the answers to these questions are affirmative, if they are yes, then everything we believe is true. So the first one is truth knowable. The second one, does God exist? The third one is, are miracles possible? And the fourth one is, the Bible reliable? If, those, if the answer to all of those are yes, then what we have is the truth. And we have something to live for and something to fight for. When I was in Bible college, I worked at Circuit City with a guy named Greg Van Scoy. He was a master's student at the University of Tennessee. Musician, and really just a neat guy. And I was giving him the gospel, and listen to what he said. He said, Jim, if what, you know, Jesus Christ is the Lord. He died to save us from our sins so that we could have eternal life. And everyone who doesn't believe that is going to go to hell. Is that the gospel? Yeah. So listen, I said that to him, and he said this to me. He said, Jim, if I believe that, I'd have to give my entire life to it. If I believe that, I'd have to give my entire life to it. How many of you think that is a true statement? Is it a true statement? So here's my question. How many of you believe the gospel as presented in the Scriptures? How many of you believe that? You believe that. Here's my question. Have you given your life to it? I'm not saying that you believe it. I'm saying, have you, has it affected your life 
in such a way that it's changed your thinking. It's changed your studying. It's changed your emphasis. It's changed the way that you interact with the world. And I dare say it has not changed us enough. Is that fair? Is that fair? And so that's where we have to understand we have an entire world system that is against us right now. You parents have an entire world system that wants to destroy your children and their faith. And so what we have to make sure is that you guys know what you believe. That it's not just your mom's faith, your dad's faith. It's not just your pastor's faith, your youth pastor's faith. It is your faith and you are set for the defense of it. And so here's how you do that. Find. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian school after I, I think I started in seventh or eighth grade at the Christian school. And I had a kid who, uh, that went to school with me who didn't believe in eternal security. And so I studied out, I, I was 13, 14, I studied out eternal security, wrote a paper out, did this whole thing, and presented the truth of eternal security to this kid. You know what? The, the information, the stuff that I speak on about eternal security, it's all the stuff that I learned when I was 13 or 14 when I had to defend that doctrine to someone who didn't believe it. It changes everything. It changes everything. When you are defending the Scripture, now you are invested in it and you're ready to stand. You know what to do. And that's what I want for you guys. And that's what I want for all of us. That's why we must study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Truth exists. It does exist. We have it. And anything that is the opposite of the truth is error. And it's our job to challenge that error in the world. Um, let me give you an example of this. Here's what we're up against. Patrick Kennedy brought this to me today. Uh, it says, Pope Francis to followers, quote, Muslims and Christians are the same. He said this, this is quote, this is from a speech from the Pope. He said, Jesus Christ, Jehovah, Allah. These are all names employed to describe an entity that is distinctly the same across the world. For centuries, blood has needlessly has been needlessly shed because of the desire to segregate our faiths. This, however, should be the very concept which unites us as people and nations and as a world bound by faith. Now, how many of you, your God is telling you that if you go and kill people, that you'll go to heaven? We don't have the same God. We, we have a personal God who created the world and then entered His creation and died on the cross for that world. Is that right? That, that's our God. The Muslim God is capricious. You never know what he's thinking, what he's going to do. And that's what they, inshallah, Allah wills it. Hey, what's going to happen? Inshallah, God, whatever God wants. It's, it's completely arbitrary. Our God is not arbitrary. It, we worship a different God than the God of Islam. How many of you agree with that? Amen. We worship a different God. This is what's called pluralism pluralism. And this is the religion of our day. And of course, this is the religion of Antichrist. That is the religion that is going to lead to a one world religion. How many of you can see that that's going to lead to one world religion? Isn't that right? The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, saith the Lord. It's very important that we get this. What the basis for this statement is this. You ought not to question someone else's beliefs. How many of you ever heard somebody say that? You ought not to question someone else's beliefs. 
Of course, that's ridiculous because that is the religion of pluralism that says that. And what's so funny is this belief is just as exclusive and intolerant as any Christian belief or any Muslim belief. You understand? So if you question, you ought not to question somebody's beliefs. And I say, you ought not believe that. Right? We're both making a judgment and we're both making a religious claim. Pluralists think that all non-pluralist beliefs are wrong. So pluralists are just as dogmatic and closed-minded as anyone else making truth claims in the public square. So we're considered dogmatic, right? Um, who was it? It was Norman Geisler. He wrote a book on apologetics. He was doing a debate. And the guy that he was debating had actually read his book, and he held up Geisler's book. So Geisler's opponent in this debate. And he said, Norman Geisler, is, he's a Christian, and Christians are so narrow-minded that they believe that anyone who doesn't believe in the Christian faith is wrong. Geisler had that guy's book, and he held it up. And he said, my opponent is so narrow-minded that he wrote this whole book on humanism. And in this book, he believes that if you do not agree with his humanism, that you're wrong. And then he said, that, that proves nothing. The question is, one of us has to be wrong, right? Competing statements, opposite statements can't both be true. So now it's not a matter of who you like, it's a matter of what is true. And we can demonstrate logically, biblically, philosophically, any way you want to approach it, that pluralism is false. It's false. Either you go to heaven based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or in the Muslim world, you go to heaven based on your good works, and they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that God replaced Christ with Judas, and Judas died on the cross. That's not the, How many of you recognize? That's not the same thing. And so the only way, the Pope goes on to say, that uh, the Quran and the Holy Bible are the same. Now, let me just say this. If you're a Catholic here today, if you're a Catholic here today, I've not said anything about the Pope. All I've done is quote him. All right, so send your hate mail to the Pope. Um, not me. But he said the Quran and the Bible are the same. The only way that you... There's only two possible ways to say that, right? There's only two possibilities. Number one, you've never read either one. Number two... You don't believe the words in them mean what they say. Is there any other possibility? Because they certainly do not say the same thing. They say things that are diametrically opposed. They're internally contradictory. And so what we have to decide is what is the truth? Is truth knowable? Is it possible for us to know the truth? And as Dr. Turek did a little while ago, he demonstrated that it is true. The prohibition against questioning religious beliefs, it is also an absolute moral position. They believe it is immoral to question someone's religious beliefs. We believe it's immoral not to question someone's religious beliefs. Why? Because Jesus told us to. The Bible says try all things, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Amen? And so what we as believers have to do, Easter Sunday's coming. We live in a community where many of the people around us are going to die and go to hell. How many of you agree with that? 
If they don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to die and go to hell. And God has placed us here to do something about that. I told you my message is confident biblical ministry. That was my introduction. Um, But don't worry, the message is very short. This is what we have to do. Any faith that is going to impact the world has to answer these questions. The question of origin, the question of meaning, the question of morality, and the question of destiny. And, of course, the Bible and biblical Christianity answers all of those things. In order to have confident biblical ministry, there are some absolutes that are necessary. Absolutes that are necessary. Number one, the absolute necessity of biblical authority. The absolute necessity of biblical authority. If we don't have biblical authority, then the authority here is Jim Alter. And let me tell you, you don't want to trust that. Our authority must be the Word of God. It must be the Bible. I mentioned to Ben jokingly earlier, don't trust preachers. Well, the Bible says that. The Bible says in Acts 17, 11, talking about the Bereans, that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether to see whether those things were so. We must have the authority of Scripture. Now, how many of you recognize there are a lot of Christian groups out there? Is that right? How do you know who's right? All the Christian groups can be divided into only four groups. There's only four, all based on authority. So traditional Christianity, that's Roman Catholicism and the mainline Protestant denominations that came out of Catholicism, they have dueling authorities. Their authority is the Word of God and tradition. An example of tradition is purgatory. It's not in the Bible. Infant baptism, it's not in the Bible. Things like that, they're not there. Seven sacraments, they're not in the Bible. A bunch of things like that. Okay, penance, it's not in the Bible. So you have all these things, these traditions that are not in the Bible. And if there's ever a conflict between the tradition and the Bible, well, the tradition overrules the Bible. So their authority is their tradition and then the Bible. How many of you recognize that? That's true. There's a second group. It's charismatic Christianity. Charismatic Christianity. And they have dueling authorities. Their authority is the Word of God in their experience. And if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their experience, then their experience overrules the Word of God. How many of you know people that live that way? You know, there are all kinds of things coming in, but what they need to trust is the Bible, but their experience overrules the Word of God. And here's what they say. They'll tell you something, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says, oh, you don't understand, you weren't there. You don't understand, you weren't there. Oh, so that's true for you, but not for me. You see the problem? That is a subjective truth. We have objective truth. All right? So first group, traditional Christianity, the Word of God and tradition. The second group, Charismatic Christianity, the Word of God and experience, and charisma, that's gifts and, you know, all of that. The third group is modern evangelical Christianity, and they have dueling and competing authorities, the Word of God and scholarship. And here's the way that manifests itself. What they'll say is, well, this verse isn't supposed to be, I've studied it, and this verse isn't supposed to be in the Bible. Like John MacArthur would say, the last 12 verses of Mark don't belong in your Bible. You just need to take them out. So we have, we have a conflict now. The Word of God and John MacArthur's scholarship. And so the authority becomes that scholarship rather than the Word of God. Is that right? Is that right? And then there's the fourth group, and that is just Bible believers. This is our authority. We believe this. We stand on it. And so in order to have confident biblical ministry, when you say the Bible says, God said, and someone says, how do you know? Well, I have it right here. If you don't believe this is it, well, what about all the other translations of the Bible? What about all the competing views of the Bible? How do you answer that? 
The law of non-contradiction says they can't all be true. Is that fair? Is that fair? All right. So you have to have the absolute necessity of biblical authority. And we cannot battle the enemy timidly. 1 Corinthians, let's just look at it. 1 Corinthians 14.8. And let me tell you, I've prepared for this all week. And I've got enough material to keep us here until the victory meeting. Um, But I'm not going to do that to you. I suppose it would be okay if we did that, wouldn't it? Ordering pizza, it'd be awesome. Just study the Word all day. It'd be great. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? You know, so if you're confused, if it's reveille or if it's charge, you got a problem. Trumpet can't make an uncertain sound. As a believer, you can't make an uncertain sound. God said it. This is what God said. This isn't my opinion. God said it. Now, let me say this. Generally speaking, John MacArthur's fantastic with that. You see him on, I've seen him on Larry King, all these different competing views, and they say, John, what do you think about it? Well, it doesn't matter what I think. God said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So when he appeals to the authority of the Word of God, then he is speaking with the authority of God. When he changes the words of God, now we got a problem. Now we have a problem. Confident biblical authority, the absolute necessity of biblical authority. Are you confident that God's Word has the answer for every challenge of the enemy? So number one, the absolute necessity of biblical authority. Number two, the absolute necessity of a command of the Bible. The absolute necessity that you have a working knowledge of the Scriptures. Have you ever gotten in a place? I know pastors taught this. I wonder what the answer to that is. Do you know what the problem is? You've heard it, but you don't know it yet because you can't say it. Right? Now, I don't expect you to memorize every sermon. Sometimes people say, what did you preach last week? If I don't remember what I preached last week, how can I expect you to remember what I preached last week? Right? And it's just true. That's the way that we are. That's not the problem. What I'm talking about is that you know what the Bible says and you know how to answer the attacks of the enemy. That doesn't happen by osmosis. Young people, you can't put the Bible under your pillow and learn its contents. You have to study it. You have to memorize it. It's work. It's work, just like any other subject. And parents, let me tell you this. If you're more concerned that your kids understand the times tables than the Bible, you, you have made an idol of education. Let me say that again. If you're more concerned that your children have a working knowledge of a multiplication table than the Bible, you've made an idol out of education. Okay, we got about maybe a tenth of the churches agreeing with me. If you are more concerned that your kids can do multiplication than understand the Bible, you have made an idol of education. Amen. Amen. Some of y'all want to go to lunch. I can tell right there. That proved it. Is that just a throwaway statement that I just made, or is it true? Seriously. Is it true? Is it true? And so we send our kids to school for seven or eight hours a day. They come home with two or three hours of homework, and they can't even tell you the books of the Bible. They can't tell you how the Bible is divided up into dispensations. They can't tell you the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They can't tell you those things. They can't tell you those things. And here's the problem. Here's what many of you think. That's what we pay you for. 
So here's the deal. How many of you want your kids to serve God in the next generation? Would you raise your hands? We need to change some priorities. We really need to change some priorities. It's vital, confident, biblical ministry, the absolute necessity of biblical authority and the absolute necessity of a command of the Scriptures. And then number three, the crushing effect of theological controversy. The crushing effect of theological controversy. If, if you keep getting competing views on the Bible... Pastor, I know you teach this, but somebody else teaches this and somebody else teaches that. It's okay that you do that, but at some point you need to come to a rock-solid understanding of what the Bible says. If you're hearing competing views and that causes you to not be able to stand, who's winning there, God or Satan? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Remember what Elijah said in the Mount of Baal? How long halt you between two opinions? You see, theological controversy destroys confidence. And that's why we teach doctrine here. The Bible says this. I remember one of the first things I did here was we taught the Baptist distinctives. And I had this lady really mad at me. She said, my grandson doesn't need doctrine. He needs the Bible. I promise you, that is a direct quote. We went through like 40 verses that service. It's really interesting. That's why we teach doctrine. Because what doctrine is, is God's truth in God's words. We as a church, we have to care about that. Amen? We, and everyone in here is at a different place in knowledge of the truth. But if it is the truth, we need to grow in knowledge of that. And we must do that according to the Word of God. Um, then, so the absolute necessity of biblical authority, the absolute necessity of a command of the Bible, the crushing effect of theological controversy... And then the incredible power of doctrinal clarity. The incredible power of doctrinal clarity. Can I tell you something? We're right. We're right. We're right. We have the truth. The Bible is our authority. Everything we believe here comes from the Scriptures. Everything we believe here comes from the Scriptures. We're right. Uh, I heard Paul Chapel say one time, and I've tried to use it ever since I heard it, he said, I want to be so biblical that if you disagree with me, you have to disagree with the Word of God. Amen? So that's why when you ask me questions, we go, well, let me show you what the Bible says. The Bible says this. The Bible says this. The Bible says this. Well, my Bible says something different. Now we have a problem. Now we have dueling authorities. So now who do we trust? That's the absolute necessity of biblical authority. And then... I think that's enough for today. It is just so important. Young people, you need to... And maybe Pastor Nathan, where are you at? Pastor Nathan, give assignments to these kids of a truth to defend. Because when you invest in it and you learn it, what you find out is... And this is true. When we first brought discipleship to Grace Baptist, one of the things that I noticed was... Several times I found where in the Bible the stuff I believed was. Isn't that good? Because we hear stuff enough that we do have core beliefs, but we couldn't necessarily find it in the Bible. That's what discipleship does. It helps you do that. It helps you do that. Um, I wonder. Easter Sunday's coming. We're moving ahead with our team ministry. Starting after the Bible conference, we're going to be introducing some different roles in our um, first impressions team and doing some training, getting ready for our big day. 
the church, Grace Baptist Church, is not Jim Alter. It's not Nathan Brannick. It's all of us. It's, amen? amen? Under the headship of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the church. Under His head, Bible calls me the under-shepherd. And then we're just brothers and sisters in Christ. The effectiveness of Grace Baptist Church, it does depend on the pulpit. Would you all agree with that? It does depend on the pulpit, but it depends just as much on the people. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are prepared. We're set for the defense of the gospel, that that we are choosing. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're no longer going to halt between two opinions, you know, the jellyfish floating. We're going to be set for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the only difference is in football. You know, they got the game face. In Christianity, you're set with a smile. And you're just ready in the right spirit to give an answer. And that's biblical maturity. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 that you no longer be be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every doctrine. Right? You're not blown away. How many of you kids, you get tired of being called a child? That ever happened? Right? This is when you know you're no longer a child, when you're set for the defense of the gospel when you're not blown about by doctrine, but you know what the Bible says, and you go off to college and a professor says there is no truth, and you look at him and say, "Uh, Sir, respectfully, is that true? Because if there is no truth, then I can write whatever I want down on the test. Doesn't matter. Amen? Amen? We need to be ready. Your teacher needs... If you have a professor or a teacher that hates God and hates the truth, he needs to dread seeing you coming. Why? Not because you're a jerk, not because you're belligerent, but because you have the truth. And it shakes his foundation. And all of a sudden, he's wild E. Coyote hanging out there on nothing. Praise God. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. Parents, multiplication table or the Bible? Which one's more important? The Bible. Your list of, do you still memorize lists of uh, prepositions? Still do that? No? Good night, I must be old. If learning, if, if learning anything is more important than learning about God, learning what He has to say, we've made that an idol. Let's make sure that our children are set for the defense of the gospel. Amen? Wouldn't it be awful if your child goes off to college, they come home after a semester and say, Dad, Mom, I don't believe in God anymore. Let's get them grounded. Let's get them grounded. Um, Nathan Arling has had to defend his faith this year at Toledo. He's doing a great job. He was grounded in the faith before he went to Toledo. Mom and dad, his family, the church, he's, he's given some great answers. Isn't that good? That's what we need to do. And, and Nathan's not the only one. We have other college students that are doing the same thing. Praise God for that. It's wonderful. Let's make sure that the rest of them can do that. That's our job. Um, I told, uh, th- throughout this year, I'm going to be bringing messages on apologetics, being prepared. And I've told uh, Jacob that I want him to take my notes and I'm going to give him tests on it. I want him to be able to give these answers. I'm going to give him tests. And if he fails the test, then he'll get caned in every... <laughs> and what that'll do is that'll teach him a love for the Word of God. <laughs> now, I really want him to know these things. Let's be set for the defense of the gospel. Amen? Let's just be set. 
I'm going to keep going until I get a good amen. Let's be set for the defense of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.